Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here in Midori House and from around the world. This week we speak with Ukrainian singer Jamala, winner of the 2016 Eurovision Song Contest. No, I feel that I must do something. Anywhere where my voice can be heard, and anywhere where my voice can help my country, I will do everything in my power to spread the world about Putin's blood crime in Ukraine. Plus, we explore one of Canada's most distinctive sporting arenas. When the Saddle Dome opened in 1983, Calgary was emerging from an uneasy period. The preceding years had seen the city's population fall for the very first time, driven by a downturn in the city's economy. So when Calgarians were allowed their first glimpse inside the Saddle Dome, few had seen anything like it in their city before. The Saddle Dome quickly became part of a fledgling sense of renewed urban pride. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with an emotional interview I did with Ukrainian singer Jamala, winner of the 2016 Eurovision Song Contest. She had to flee Ukraine with her kids and is now spreading the word about the atrocities happening in her country. Let's hear it from her. I'm in Istanbul, uh, in my sister's house. But I can say that I'm in safe place because in this time, my husband in Ukraine, my husband's father in Ukraine, all my team in Ukraine, all my musical band in Ukraine. And that's why I'm not feel safety. The war caught us like millions of other Ukrainians by surprise at 5 a.m. on the 24th of February. And of course, we followed the media reports with different predictions, but uh, somehow we didn't believe that till the end that such a horror could even happen in 20th century in the middle of Europe. The evacuation of children was decided uh, on the same day after the first bombing of Kiev. We were in three times in bomb shelters with my kids. And to be honest, we had only five minutes to pack. And I grabbed our documents to address the kids and I tried not to panic and even made a joke about whether to take the Eurovision Song Contest award or not. But of course, I took nothing. Actually, it's the same for most of the Ukrainian mothers who grabbed their kids and ran. And I hope I can return with my kids very soon. And Jamala, I want to ask you, as an Ukrainian artist and a symbol, I mean, I remember when you won in 2016 with the very powerful 1944, what do you feel is, is your role at the moment? Because, you know, a lot of people listen to you. And, and, and to be fair, I've seen your performance of 1944 at the German national finals. You asked people for donations and it was quite successful in that way. So how do you see your role as an artist in this very difficult moment for Ukraine? No, I feel that I must do something. Anywhere where my voice can be heard, and anywhere where my voice can help my country, I will do everything in my power to spread the world about Putin's blood crime in Ukraine. And Berlin was like top of my way. Tomorrow I'm going to Lithuania and after tomorrow to Romania to do the same things. I'll proceed from SMS voting where donated to help Ukraine. And I feel that I have to be like 
voice of mothers and children who are in the bomb shelters now who were killed and it's insane that's why i'm just i'm just trying to do something and i think you're very right and and just remembering back in 2016 when you won with 1944 it was quite interesting because the song itself it is a political song in in, in many ways and 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 it's quite weird right that something I wouldn't say the, the same, but something is, is happening right now as well. How, how do you feel about that? Because clearly it's a, quite a personal story a little bit, 1944 for you, right? Yeah, for me, it's in that time, it uh, wasn't political at all. It was like story of my granny and my old Crimean Tatars about uh, this uh, horrible genocide. And nowadays, unfortunately, this repeats itself because now it sounds more realistic, you know, because then I wrote this song, it was about past, about 1944 story, but nowadays it sounds so real because when strangers are coming, even the neighbors are coming, they come to your house, they kill you all and say we're not guilty and the same because we are, we are hearing at the time this lie from Russians media because they say that it's like mission they say like it's some crisis but no we know for sure that it's a full-scale war and it's like terrorism nowadays but you feel the international community is doing enough how did you feel that the reaction from other countries I mean you mentioned that you are in another country that is not Ukraine now how did you see this I really call on all European countries of greed because, you know, we need to unite. You have to realize that this is a war not only against the Ukrainian people, but against all European values, the values which we have have built uh, for so long time. And I really worry about that it will be like Syrian variant. When we talk about this sometime, one week, two weeks, one month, and then we, we said, okay, what can we do? It's just not, not our war, something like that. We can't get used to war. It's really hard now for me because I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaker, I'm not poli- about war, I'm not a politician at all. I'm, I'm not ready to speak about war. I'm not ready to speak about weapons, to ask Europe, give us some weapons or close the sky or something like that. But now I understand it's not a political issue. For me, it's like uh, to do something to protect my country, to do our culture, to, to protect uh, my kids. And I really miss my home. I really miss my flat. I really miss my husband. And I speak with him every day. And I try to, be, to have force enough to go through all of this, but I'm exhausted and I'm almost two weeks. I don't have any sleep. I understand. It must be a harrowing moment. And, but at the same time, I think you are doing a great job just showing the message. It can be with your song or whatever. And you told me that you're not only been to Germany, now you're going to other countries as well to be. Is it, is it kind of Eurovision related things that you're going to, sh- to show the message yeah. in a way to the world? Uh, no. Actually, yes, I'm just very thankful for German authorities and organizers of Eurovision. 
because it was their proposal and it's huge help for us. Now, continuing with our coverage of the war in Ukraine, here is an interview we did with Lada Roslicki, founder of Black Trident, a defense and security consulting group who joined the Monaco Daily from Ukraine. We're really happy to see that there's there's resonance being um, brought to, to these clips and there will be more. The intention is to have one every other day identifying really pivotal aspects of the war in Ukraine, but presented in a way that um, people who are not living in Ukraine will be able to understand. So really that international outreach. I mean, there's an obvious hook to the International Women's Day 1 release today, but in general, what kind of themes do you find are important or, I guess, useful to communicate? Are there recurring things you keep coming back to, things that you're starting to realise do do catch on in the outside world? Uh, well, everything is going to be catching on. So uh, themes like the no-fly zone is going to be recurring because there's a very uh, low level of understanding of what a no-fly zone is and how it can be implemented. All non-fly zones uh, to date have been implemented against aggressor states and not a country that is being attacked. And people don't understand that. The threat of World War III, if NATO is involved, is something that really needs to be dispelled. The fact that NATO is the only organization that can save the world is also something that needs to be dispelled. The um, the role of Belarus is something that is extremely um, quiet. And Belarus is a conspirator state, for instance, Today, we received very disturbing information that a number of ballistic missiles have been moved from the Russian Federation into onto the uh, Belarusian border, and we're expecting the worst, actually. So, and also really importantly are like these myths that are being spun in particularly Western media, although we're keeping an eye out on the uh, Middle East and Asian media, just myths that are being repeated. And some of them have clear roots in the, from the Russian Federation that are being repe- repeated and other ones that are just from a clear naivete or like as simple as not calling it the Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, there's a whole gamma and, and it's all based like at the heart of it, it's based in love and understanding and unity so it, that's why I think that they're strong. Do you think it is important to maintain a difference in, I guess, tone and credibility between you know U- Ukrainian messaging and Russian me- messaging? And a lot of what we have seen coming out of Russia, you know, is, is flatly absurd and easily disprovable nonsense. Though I suspect at this point the Western world is not uh, the audience for it. Is it important? Do you think to? put messaging out there that can't be uh, debunked or discredited? 
Absolutely. I think that the post-truth world is coming to an end. And people claim for centuries that the first victim of war is the truth, while the truth is actually something that is not, you know, you can't debunk the truth. So it's the best instrument that can be used. And that's something that that is going to be used by Ukraine. There's a more spontaneous or spontaneous looking at least aspect to Ukraine's communications, which is these videos we see of President Zelensky uh, in Kiev basically talking uh, into the phone at the end of his arm. How important are, I mean, those are obviously important in demonstrating to the outside world that he's still in Kiev. And I know there's been an attempt by Russia in the last week or so to, uh, you know, float the idea that he ran away and is hiding in the US embassy in Warsaw. But are those videos important to people in Ukraine, that sort of demonstration that the president and the government are still in Kiev and they're not leaving? Absolutely. There are two levels of communication. So one is for the people in Ukraine and the, the other level, which is international and global. So the people of Ukraine definitely need to have that assurance of the leader and the team, because Ukrainians have a tendency to kind of nitpick and pick at each <laughs> other all the time. And this is probably the first time. And and for years, people have been saying that Ukraine's independence came too easily. And now it's, like, it's quite clear that black and the white is becoming much, much more clear and seeing the president speaking to international leaders with the words and the slogans that the people on the ground, like just plain old civilians, are thinking is incredibly uh, important for building the spirit of of the people who are fighting and dying um, because Russia is killing us. And just finally, for now, what kind of conversations have you had about maintaining the momentum in messaging? Because if this war grinds on for weeks or months, though obviously we hope that will not be the case, but if it does, what kind of conversations have you had about what kind of messages are going to keep working if it looks like that the the story, if you like, has ground to something of a halt? Mm-hmm. Uh, one discussion that is floating around is we're expecting something to happen in the West because too many uh, countries and too many people all over the world are focusing on the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. So we're thinking about how are we going to like address that and by forewarning that it will happen. You know, that's that's more what we're focused on. And as long as the war continues, the atrocities um, will continue to deliver truth that is going to hook hearts and minds. And we have now over two million refugees running outside of, of, of Ukraine. So there are going to be issues, um, many to cover, but we really need to be united and have a really clear head that we are not the aggressor states. And I say states because it includes all NATO countries, India, the Middle East. We're not the aggressor. And it's time to really understand the power of truth and the responsibility of wisdom. You're listening to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And from the stack, Monaco's Chris Chermak spoke to the Kiev's independent defense reporter, Ilya Ponomarenko. It must feel like such a long time ago at this point, but 
What do you remember of leaving the Kiev post and then the, the start of the Kiev independence? Oh, okay. So I, I think you need a little bit <laughs> more information about who uh, I am and what I am doing at the Kiev independence. So I worked at the Kiev post for some six years from 2011 to 2017. And then I left KP just to do other things. Uh, I worked at the Kiev Post as a reporter and the news editor, but then I left to do other things. I worked as a manager uh, in different media outlets, including TV, investigative production. Uh, you know, uh, I did a lot of project management for um, media development and stuff like that. So I basically turned into a media manager and um, finally after one of my last jobs I joined the genomics media consulting which is a uh, media consulting agency founded by uh, my partner who used to be also a Keith Poster CEO of the Keith Post at some point and we started working together on like media consulting and then uh, I still had friends at the Keith Post uh, Olga Rodenko the Keith Independence chief editor now used to be the deputy chief editor of the Keith Post she wasn't this my friend and uh, you know i kind of stayed in touch with the kp newsroom so when uh, but i wasn't part of the newsroom or wasn't part of the team at all when this happened so basically when four months ago kivan fired the whole team i wasn't there uh, i just heard about it and uh, i offered my help because i knew that they he fired the whole team but basically like the managerial the editorial team wanted to start something new and there is, you know, they didn't have any managers with them or, you know, people or commercial team to support their activities. Uh, so I suggested that uh, Genomics, you know, joins their efforts and we together launch the Keep Independent, uh, whereas we take care of the managerial and commercial business side and, and the editorial team is taking care of the editorial. Uh, and that's what we did. At the end, so we met, we discussed our plans and visions, and then we started working together and, and we launched the Kiev Independent four months ago. And yeah, that's how it started for me. And just describe a little bit then what the first few months in particular uh, were, were like for you. What kind of uh, traction did you have in those early days? I mean, the first few months, I think the first months and a half I we were barely sleeping I think we were working like I don't know 20 hours a day on average because we were tasked with like setting up uh, a competitive media outlet within a very short period of time and that's what we did so we launched our first product before we even had a name we went on the fundraising journey before we we even had a name so we had a business plan before we had a name actually so um yeah we launched the newsletter first ukraine daily that still comes out six days a week uh with daily updates in your mailbox and uh it has i mean last time i checked it had like up to four thousand subscribers i would suppose that now it's much more but i didn't frankly check the numbers then we launched a podcast media in progress that is basically about um, uh, how we build the Kiev independent I suppose it's now on hold because you know not not the priority but then on December 6th so we basically launched the, the team was fired on November 8th and then uh, in a week uh, from there we launched the Kiev independent and on December 6th 
we already launched a website. We found the amazing partners, uh, uh, development and design agency and branding agency. I'm not sure what you know, <laughs> what their tagline is. Um, uh, Duka agency. They helped us pro bono to create the website, and they are still supporting us a lot. Now at this time when we the 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 website is like under multiple attacks and and stuff, they are you know trying to find the solutions to solve that all pro bono they're great partners for us so we launched the website and then from then on we you know we very quickly launched a patreon page and asked for the community support we decided to build the membership model soon after that in january we started doing the commercial activities we actually started selling advertising when this all shit happened so the first months was very busy uh, we worked a lot. We were launching products after products. We we're assembling a team. We we're figuring out a lot of managerial processes. We we're registering legal entities. We we're figuring out business model. We we're fundraising a lot, talking to donors and investors, and and you know, so that that's what you know how it looked like. And describe particularly. You mentioned they're launching a Patreon page, um, looking for donations. Also, of course, from the international community, just describe a little bit what kind of support you've received, especially in the last couple of weeks and what that's that's felt like. Well, basically, so we launched Patreon page um, maybe, I don't know, very soon, just like right after we got a name. And we started, uh, you know, asking people to become members of our community. We had additional benefits from them. We would send them exclusive updates and stuff. And the community was growing steadily. So I think by, I guess that by the beginning of war, we had around 800 paying patrons who were donating in general, like, I don't know, eight thousand dollars monthly or something like that which is by the way is a good result for ukrainian media we were second uh, biggest patron in ukrainian media at that point and then we also had a crowdfunding campaign go fund me to launch the keep independent and and i think we gathered around what fifteen thousand um, british pounds or like up to 20k dollars which was also a, a huge support but then when the war started you know, we launched a new campaign basically uh, on, on the GoFundMe and we also started promoting a lot of Patreon and um, Patreon too. So and with all the attention, I think we, you know, a lot of people saw us as the main independent source of English language information about what's going on in Ukraine. And I think in the last six days, we've got amazing results. Yeah, so now on GoFundMe, we have... $779,889 raised. It's incredible. And it's, oh, it's, it's not dollars, sorry. It's, it's uh, British pounds, actually. You know, raising people are still donating and uh, people are messaging us about how they're grateful for what we're doing and uh, how the information, reliable information is very important right now. And, and I think that's motivating everybody on the team. Yeah, it's incredible in terms of the response. I mean, you, you've since, as as you say, you've very much become the voice of of Ukraine for the the outside world and in, in the English language media. What does that responsibility feel like? Well, you know, like I'm not a journalist and a reporter, so I'm I'm a manager. I'm a CEO of the Kiev Independent, and uh, 
but this this last days i mean it's not like i have a lot of managerial work really you know i i mean there is the main work lies in the shoulders of, of our chief editor who's like coordinating the team and stuff um she left kiev but she's in ukraine and uh, so we have a couple of journalists in Kyiv, a couple of journalists outside of Kyiv, but still in Ukraine, and, and a couple of foreigners who are also our staffers uh, like outside of Ukraine helping us. We also have a bunch of volunteers helping us too. Um, but I was like, so in these days, me personally, it was hard for me to like do anything really except for read news. So I, I decided I, I could be helpful. <laughs> and I started, I, I was for a couple of days, I was on news duty, uh, helping the editorial team. So how the being the voice of Ukraine feels like, well, I yesterday, I think when um, your commission president quoted our editorial uh, in the European Parliament, it was probably the, like the, the biggest moment where we kind of realized that we are the main voice of ukraine now in the world and uh i mean it's it's a huge responsibility i know that you know we try to be very careful about what we post we uh, you know we we've got one and a half million subscribers on twitter and the whole world is basically reading us we got you know one and a half million daily clicks on website yeah that's a big responsibility we understand that absolutely and i mean i i know it is so difficult given the situation that you're you're currently in to think about the future but what with with all of the support as well that you have received what what do you think about in terms of what to do next what what to do in the next 1 to 2 months do you, would you think about launching other products i mean where does your mind go in that sense about how to how to keep this going I mean, it's uh, frankly very hard to make long-term plans right now. I'm sitting in, in the apartment and I hear, you know, explosions all the time. And it's like, uh, I kind of try to focus on what's going on right now. And I can't tell you that without consulting with the team. It's not like it's my decision. None of us have time to like think strategy right now. So... I am yeah. sure we'll find a way to invest this money to either sustain the Kiev independent for years to come with this support, like maybe create an endowment or something that will, uh, you know, keep us going and make us truly independent. And we won't have to rely on the source of funding that are not, you know, stable or that are compromised or something. Maybe we'll launch other products and that's, you know, probably both will happen. For now, it's hard to say. It's like we try to keep the team together. The team is scattered throughout Ukraine and, and the world. And we just rented an office just like a month ago. And we finally got this office and, and we were so happy about it. And now we have to, I don't know. I, we don't know what, we, what we're going to do in a month or two. Let's see. Yeah, of course. Maybe then just just as one final question, but in terms of the immediate uh, and and how it feels over there, what are you doing at this moment in terms of, I, I know that, as you say, Olga, uh, the editor-in-chief, is, is running sort of the, the daily operations, but what are you trying to do in terms of contingency planning, anything to, to, to keep this going over the next days, weeks? I mean, we, we were looking, so 
I have a team, a sport team at Genomics, who, and, you know, my partner, Jakub Rosinski, who is the CFO of the Kiev Independent, he is uh, outside of Ukraine and he is trying to do a lot about that. If you want to talk to him, you can, you know, I highly recommend that too. So they, from what I know, they're trying to secure a couple of spaces in different, you know, European capitals in case, you know, we want, we all want to relocate and we want to gather a team in one place. That's one thing. I mean, we are kind of fundraising a lot to make sure that, you know, if we don't have access to our Ukrainian bank accounts, that we have access to the Patreon money and uh, GoFundMe support and and stuff. Uh, We're talking to a lot of international partners about, like, how, you know, we can get help, uh, financial support or other help. But also now a lot of focus is on how to get like bulletproof vests and helmets to to Kiev to help us because we we didn't have any of that because we were like four months old and we were trying to get some right before the war but every year like it was already impossible to get any in Ukraine so we didn't get to and now my colleagues are trying to get us some from abroad so they're trying to figure out the logistics and of, of how to do that. So that's that's basically the focus right now. Uh, it's it's kind of too late for a contingency plan, you know. The, the thing has already happened, so we are just now to have to survive through it and then make sure that we uh, gather somewhere yeah. and keep working. And now to the world of cinema. A new film set in a Swiss care home for at-risk young people explores the tricky inner workings of these institutions through the fictional stories of the girls who live in the home and their staff. La Myth has an entirely non-professional cast with direct experience of social care, and it was written and directed by Fred Baif, himself a former social worker. Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs spoke to Fred in our London studio ahead of the film's release in the UK. She started off by asking him to explain the film's title. Well, Lamif, it comes from a French slang word. Lamif means family, as uh, young people say. Actually, the girls I worked with inspired me the title. These girls come from uh, from care home life and... uh, They're playing their own role in the movie. It's a fiction film, but the actors really come from a life of living in care. It's also, I believe, kind of partly inspired by your own background as well, working in social work. Yeah. You know, when you write stories, you usually either you talk about something that you know or you make a research on the subject. And I'm lucky that I have both. I've done both on this project. I was a social worker. So I kind of know this world from the inside. But I also did a really, really strong research, especially on characters, because I work with non-professional actors and uh, the women I have decided to work with, they told me so many things, so many stories, so many... It's really the backstage of living in a home that they gave me and it inspired me a lot. Could you talk a little bit more about that process of how you made the script and how you wove in the stories of, as you said, the non-professional actors that you're working with and how you kind of created the story using their own lives as well as, you know, your imagination, obviously. The movie is a, a mix of stories, of portraits of people living in care. And so... In order to do that, I I had to be inspired by their reality, but I had to be careful. Uh, 
because for me it has to be fiction. It's not a documentary. So what is true is their personalities, but the stories are totally made up, but inspired by stories that I've heard doing my research, and the research comes from them. You know, telling me stories about other people, about things they witnessed in their lives, you know, because a lot happens when you live in care, really. It does, and that's what I'm trying to show. It's obviously a very sensitive subject and especially working with people who have experiences of it. And I wondered how you sort of handled that and how you approached this whole project with as much sensitivity as possible. Yeah, it was a big challenge to make this movie, especially since I wanted to talk about sexuality in this life of living in care, in this home where girls live in care. And sexuality in this environment is a real taboo. And uh, it's not only in Switzerland. I think uh, it's a very universal question. And the fact that I wanted to talk about it was a big problem from the beginning. You know, I had a lot of problems with institutions, uh, people I, I wanted to collaborate on this project, closed the doors to me many times. But uh, I did it because I, I thought it was very important to talk about sexuality. I think it's a very important subject. But because it comes from the stories that I've heard from people who live in this environment, who work in this environment too, they told me about it and I thought it was a real, real issue. And you mentioned your own experience as a social worker. Obviously, that's brought in a lot of the kind of content and the focus of this film. But do you also see any kind of parallels with the work in terms of the process and, and how you go about it and your approach between kind of social work and, and now being a filmmaker? I believe I'm a much better social worker now with what I do because uh, it's concrete, it's creative, and I'm totally independent when you are a social worker and you work in an institution, that's something you will see in the film. You're stuck into a lot of you know, rules and uh, laws, things you have to respect. And um, relationship, there's a barrier between you and, and the people you want to help. That's a huge problem for me. You definitely see how kind of bound up in rules the people who are just trying to create the best life for the children in their care are. And I guess it's quite a, a specific story. It's set in a care home in Switzerland about a group of girls and the people who are charged with their care. And I was wondering what the universal message you think the film has that kind of comes, you know, really out of that setting. Well, I'm happy that the movie is coming out in the UK. I love British cinema and I'm very proud to be distributed by BFI and... I think the strongest message of this movie is that even when you try to put people in a ghetto, they still can do things, amazing things. Because that's what happened to these girls in their real life. And the fiction helped them express themselves, be heard, and also uh, evolve, really develop as persons, you know. And now all of them, they believe in themselves much more than they did before because of this experience. So I think that's the message of this project, because it's not only a movie, it's also a social project I made with them. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Last week, members of Ukraine's parliament met in the Verkhovna Rada in Kiev. It was yet another demonstration of unity and resolve by a government, and indeed opposition, which has had to adapt quickly from the partisan politicking of peace to the contingencies of a war for national survival. Andrew Muller was joined by one of those MPs, Alona Shikrun, on the foreign desk. He began by asking what an average day looks like for her at the moment. The average day really varies a lot. Uh, so I would say that we, we were on the move. We did not stay at one place for a long time. And due to security reasons, it wasn't, uh, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good idea. So if I stay somewhere near Kiev and I don't have anywhere to go, basically, and we had a couple of days like that, then the average day would be coordinating the humanitarian aid, coordinating the needs of the army, coordinating the needs of the territorial defense. This is some defense that we have, that people have created for Kiev and for other regions. Obviously, speaking to international partners, to members of parliament from all over the world, because I'm a member of a number of delegations, while speaking to journalists and basically helping with anything that I can do, like trying to get people out of certain places, trying to get some of the children abroad. We have a lot of mayor's office from Spain, from France, from Poland, uh, wanted to, to take away the children and to help the children, and etc., etc. So this would be an average day if nothing is going on in the radar or nothing that I have to be personally for. We did have a meeting in the parliament, so we needed to come to the parliament and then have a meeting and vote for a number of bills. We voted for more than 17, I think, bills on defense, on the army, on uh, support for our small businesses, on taking away the obligation to pay taxes right now if they do not have a possibility to pay taxes, and etc., etc., etc. So a lot of a lot of bills that we voted for. We also had committee meetings, so we had the possibility to do a commission and committee meetings online. We introduced those possibilities due to COVID uh, a year ago or even more. So we do have uh, committee meetings on online in Zoom. I am a member of committee on banking, finance, tax, and customs. So we did have a lot of work to do on stabilizing the currency and making sure that everybody in Ukraine can pay with his credit card or with his, uh, well, electronically. So we need to make sure that the National Bank of Ukraine can actually deliver the payments and deliver the cash to the ATMs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of work from the committee side. If we think back to the weeks and months before Russia invaded, Ukraine's government was working very hard to project a certain calmness. While that was going on, were contingency plans underway for how you would keep government functioning if Russia invaded? Well, to tell you honestly, we never expected, even if we had certain information from different intelligence and our intelligence, we never expected that we would be ha having bombs in Kiev and in Kharkiv. We did prepare and we did expect that there would be certain military interventions from Russia and continuing military aggression on the east. And from the side of the Crimea, on the Donbass, we did not expect and were not prepared that it would come from Belarus. Actually, our intelligence showed quite well that it, it should not do that. And we were not prepared to have them near Kiev. And right now we are having, from the north of Kiev, we are having the 
uh, the shellings and etc etc and basically Kiev was bombed a number of nights as you know so we did not prepare for that did we prepare for the government to work and for the parliament to work I would say that to tell you honestly it was about two three days before uh, the war started the real war so two three days before the 24th uh, we did have a mechanism and uh a protocol on how to act and what to do if something happened. So the protocol involved all the MPs, you know, being alerted and then getting into a specific place. The place turned out to be the parliament, but we did have a number of places and a number of options uh, that if something happens, you are alerted and you have to get there in one hour. And we did have a special protocol for members of parliament, for secret service, for government, for a prosecutor general, well, basically for all the civil servants and politicians. And this protocol started on, on the at, at 5 a.m. When, when Putin basically declared full-scale war and bombing of the civilians and peaceful cities. Where we prepared that we are going to move the parliament somewhere else? No. As you can see, even though it is risky and it's not 100% safe and nothing is in our country right now, we still gathered in the parliament, in the center of Kiev, in the governmental uh, area, uh, because we did think that it is very, very important for the people to see that we are not scared to be in the center of Kiev. The president is not scared to be in his office. We are not scared to be at the parliament. Uh, we did it quite fast. So I was in the parliament for now one hour and a half. The voting lasted about 40 minutes. So obviously we did not sit there for, you know, a day. Uh, but it was very important that the members of parliament are in Kiev, that there are enough votes to gather the parliament and that the parliament sits in Kiev. If something happens, we do have the protocol what to do, but as, as long as we can meet, we will meet in Kiev. And now a change of tone here on the curator. It's time for Food Neighborhoods, and this time we look at a grilled octopus recipe by the man behind Budapest's Michelin-starred restaurant, Essencia. My name is uh, Tiago Savarigu. I'm the chef and owner of Essencia Restaurant together with my wife. We build up a uh, concept with Portuguese and Hungarian food. Everything is based on our memories, old stories, and we want to create new stories. So everything based on uh, things we taste and remind us when we were small. From my side, the Portuguese side, from my wife, the Hungarian side, and that's why we, what we try to bring to the people. That's going to be our experience. We just uh, received a Michelin star last year in September, so basically we are a Michelin star restaurant in the center of Budapest. So today I will share with you one of the signature dishes of Essence. We have the grilled octopus with uh, beluga lentils and uh, roasted garlic mayonnaise. Part of this dish uh, represents really what Essencia means because we have, I would say, Portuguese products, so the octopus and the garnish is a bit more from here, but part of it, you know, is a bit of everything together that exemplifies both countries. We cook the octopus for four and a half hours, five, a controlled temperature at 82 degrees. After, when we plate it or we serve it, we grill the octopus, and this grill taste really reminds every grilled fish we eat back at home in Portugal. The lentils, they are cooked very slowly. We don't need to boil too much the water because it will break the lentils. And then we need to cool it down and serve it cold, seasoned with a strong vinaigrette and with some black pudding inside. For the roasted garlic mayonnaise, we need to 
involve the garlic in the aluminium foil with some salt and olive oil and roast it 200 degrees for 5-10 minutes and after we take out all the inside and we do like a normal recipe of mayonnaise and we just add the garlic to it to our taste you can have more garlic less garlic but it's important that you feel a bit of the caramelized garlic taste then as well Adding to this, we finished with a slightly salsa on the top of the octopus with roasted peppers. You can use any type of peppers from green, yellow or red. They give a very specific flavor like we in Portugal at the time of the sand push. In Lisbon, in the streets, we have this roasted pepper salad together with sardines. So, you know, it really brings back the memory when I was uh, going to party, I would say, when I was younger. So we add a bit of garlic, a bit of uh, shallot, and uh, is acid as well. So it's important to have the vinaigrette. Vinaigrette basically is just olive oil and uh, white wine vinegar, like my mother or my parents used to do it at home. We use beluga lentils for this dish because of the tenderness, and we call it beluga because the, the lentils, they look like caviar, it reminds the caviar. So it's a very nice, high quality of product. We finished the octopus with a touch of uh, salt flakes from Samarin that is in Algarve near the Spanish border. And the uh, wine pairing for this dish, my recommendation is a Portuguese vinho verde from Goevu. It's a perfect pairing for seafood, in this case with the grilled octopus. It's a very fresh, uh, light and fruity taste and it's perfect to start the, the meal. I hope we have a chance we can taste it here in the restaurant. We are waiting for you. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. Time now for Tall Stories. Thomas Lewis explores one of Canada's most distinctive sporting arenas, the future of which is threatened by proposals for a new, albeit less characterful, event venue in Calgary. That familiar bullhorn cry is perhaps one of Calgary's most famous sporting slogans. It's been a fixture of NHL games in Calgary since 1996 and is synonymous with the building in which it's broadcast every game day at the storied Saddledome Arena. The Saddledome is one of Calgary's most famous and recognisable buildings. It was opened in 1983 as a home to the city's NHL franchise, the Calgary Flames, and also served as a venue for the 1988 Winter Olympic Games, for which it hosted the Olympic ice dancing contests. In that great arena called the Saddledome, two American pairs are positioned third and fourth as they prepare for their long program. That's the final phase of that competition. When the Saddledome opened in 1983, Calgary was emerging from an uneasy period. The preceding years had seen the city's population fall for the very first time, driven by a downturn in the city's economy, which, in turn and in the eyes of many, had dented the city's sense of itself more broadly. So when Calgarians were allowed their first glimpse inside the Saddledome in 1983, few had seen anything like it in their city before. And despite news coverage of cost overruns in its construction, the Saddledome quickly became part of a fledgling sense of renewed urban pride. For 12 hours, thousands of people poured through the Saddledome's two lounges and 33 private suites complete with bars and refrigerators. They watched peewee hockey, and bought popcorn and soft drinks by the gallon in the broad concourse. The Saddledome is the first major project to be completed. 
If you haven't seen the building for yourself, a clue to what it looks like lies in its name. Its silhouette swoops down into a large curve before rising again to the other side of the building, like, you guessed it, a saddle. And while the building's architect, Barry Graham, has said that the roof's famous shape, and I quote, just happened, it's hard not to see in it a nod to another defining part of Calgary sporting life, the annual Calgary Stampede, which features one of the largest rodeos anywhere in the world. Graham has said that the roof's engineering is a little like a warped tennis racket, a grid of cables laid across the arena upon which the concrete slabs of the arena's roof were laid, allowing for its famous swoop. But in 2019, a deal was struck to demolish and replace the Saddle Dome, which, even to some of the building's most ardent admirers, acknowledged had become somewhat tired and frayed around the edges over the years. Even Graham himself told the local press that he had reconciled, replacing the building he designed with something new. The goal for the Saddle Dome's replacement was to create a new events arena that, it was pledged, would spur economic development in the city. But it was hard not to concede that the renderings of the proposed new design, big and boxy and monochrome, felt far less imaginative, less joyful or whimsical than the Saddle Dome's current form, as fanciful as it still feels. That proposed design felt as though you could be anywhere. The Saddle Dome, as it is, feels unique in its form to the city of Calgary. But the plans to redevelop the Saddle Dome fell through late last year amid rising costs in the wake of the financial pressures the coronavirus pandemic has brought to the city of Calgary, as the city's mayor, Jyoti Gondek, told me recently. We can see that globally, supply chain disruption is creating increased cost on all kinds of things. Construction costs have gone up quite considerably because materials are no longer available the way they used to be. So I think what has happened in this particular case is through no fault of anyone's other than a global pandemic that we could not control and we could not foresee in 2019, the project became untenable. And there was a condition in that contract that said if either party doesn't execute on the construction contracts by December 31st, that you could walk away from the deal. And I believe it's by virtue of the economy that that deal is no longer in place. I think it's absolutely possible that we will still create an entertainment district that will include an event center. And all 15 members of our council agree that this is something we should pursue. We just need to do it a little bit differently than we had envisioned two years ago. If those plans to replace the Saddle Dome do go ahead in the years to come, whatever replaces it should be as ambitious in its architecture, as whimsical in its design, and as exuberant in its silhouette as the current designs were when they were conceived nearly 40 years ago. You could say that it's easy to build something new much more difficult to build something that captures something far less tangible, and that is a city's sense of itself. And finally, on the curator, Monaco's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, reflects on the return of Paris Fashion Week. The Fashion Week started last Monday evening with um, a tribute show to the late designer Virgil Abloh of the brand Off-White. It's been a really interesting week, all of the big brands back in action and back on the physical catwalk. And it's also been the first time that the, the entire industry from across Europe and the US have been able to get back on the road and travel and get together after the pandemic. But of course, 
the mood has been dampened down quite a lot by the situation in Ukraine and a lot of designers have chosen to to pay tribute to the people of Ukraine on their catwalk. I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, from my perspective, there's an emerging scene in Ukraine. You know, one of my favourite fashion designers, Senia Schneider, is from Kyiv. So I'm curious how what is happening there is affecting the work of the broader community. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, are we seeing tributes to Ukraine on the runway? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most uh, interesting and, and resonating moments was the Balenciaga show where the creative director, Demna Vasalia, put uh, printed uh, T-shirts with the, with the flag of Ukraine on uh, everyone's seats. Uh, his entire team was wearing the, the T-shirts backstage. And he also left a letter uh, on everyone's seat where he acknowledged the situation. He spoke also about his own dilemma of seeing what's going on in the world and, and feeling that uh, fashion is losing its relevance at this moment. He was even torn about hosting the show to begin with, but he chose to, to go ahead with it as a, a sign of uh, perseverance and strength. And he also spoke very openly about his own experiences. He was um, uh, a refugee from Georgia who had to flee his country in 1993. So he spoke about how the current situation has reawakened those memories for him. More broadly, it sort of would appear like these sorts of difficult global moments are quite separate from the fashion world. But are there deeper connections or is there deeper work being done aside from raising awareness through protests? And I guess I also want to know what the fashion industry can do to help Ukraine. This is what everyone has been asking themselves and feeling torn between attending shows, enjoying Fashion Week, knowing what's going on in Ukraine. Obviously, Fashion Week is a very visible platform, so people have been using it to raise awareness. And and that has been the biggest ask from Ukrainian designers. And a lot of designers have been coming out wearing the Ukrainian flag. Isabelle Marand, the Parisian designer, did it, taking her bow at her show. Obviously, there was Demna Vasalia, Pierpaolo Piccioli at Valentino, sent a message saying love is the answer. Raising awareness has been the the main response from from the industry, but also a lot of the big groups during Fashion Week have um, announced plans to seize operations in Russia. And uh, many, many editors, stylists and uh, designers joined uh, the Ukrainian designer Lilia Litovskaya on Saturday afternoon during an anti-war rally. I mean, stepping away from Ukraine for a moment to focus on Paris itself, this is a city that's a capital of fashion and many people are returning for the first time, I guess, in two years. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what it's like for them. You know, have new fashion museums appeared, are ateliers and, and bricks and mortar stores popping up in significant numbers since 2020? There is a big uh, appetite for culture and for fashion. So except from the runways, there has been a lot of movement in retail Dior had a really big opening last night of its uh, flagship store on uh, number 30 Avenue Montaigne, which is where Christian Dior started his brand in 1946, right after the Second World War. They've reopened the store after years of renovation. It's tripled in size and it's this giant, almost like luxury adult playground with four restaurants, a museum, um, a luxury hotel suite that VIP customers can rent out and and stay in for the night and three floors of men's, women's, uh, children's wear, home decor. So that was a really big statement about 
the importance of physical retail, but also a lot of interesting exhibitions going on. Attached to the, to the Dior store, there is um, an exhibition that's now going to be open to the public, tracing the history of Dior. Chanel is hosting an exhibition about uh, female pioneers in the 1920s. And there will also be another exhibition opening, paying tribute to Albert Elbaz, uh, the designer who was made famous for his work at Lanvin and sadly passed away last year because of COVID. And just finally, to bring it full circle, I want to ask what we are seeing thematically or mood-wise on the runway. You know, we've talked about the Ukraine protests, but I, I know from speaking offline that you mentioned there are some moodier collections on show this year. Can you tell us about that? You're right. It is a lot moodier, a little darker this season. Givenchy had a very, an all-dark palette and a very sporty, uh, sinister silhouettes. Rick Owens as well was... Um, hosted his show, uh, showing uh, really monastic, uh, almost um, very conservative silhouettes and uh, steam coming out of the runway. Everything was really dark and moody and um, cocooning, um, blankets around the models. And also Jonathan Anderson at Loewe had a very interesting collection where he showed sort of, uh, he, he called them irrational, uh, surrealist garments, uh, inspired by the sculptor uh, Anthea Harrison. A mix of uh, inspirations and references, but yeah, overall, the mood is turning and it's back to tailoring, back to business and uh, slightly darker, sinister mood. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear more of our best interviews. Thanks for listening. <laughs>